Well, good morning. Like OJ said, uh, my name is Chad. I am the student minister here. And he's right. I do get to be uh, a little bit more casual, a little bit more cool. Um, and so, you know, as he was saying that, I thought of something. I, uh, I always travel with backup clothes when I'm preaching because I am messy. And so, OJ, if you would like to be a little more cool, I've got those there Thanks. for you. So I've got some more fun, fun shoes. You can, you can complete the ensemble. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to be with you guys here this morning. I, uh, this is actually a topic that I really like to talk about because part of my story is working through doubt. It's one of the reasons why I like working with our middle and high school students so much is because like that was a time in my life when, when there were these two things going on. There was all of this stuff uh, in the world. There was all of this stuff that I was figuring out like outside of church and then my family uh, had become Christians when I was in middle school. And like I wasn't all the way in. Like I went to church, but I, there was just this, this constant struggle. And, and so that's, that's been a part of my story for as far back as, as I can remember, really, in terms of my faith and, and working with doubt and, and, and having to deal with that. And so, you know, one of the things uh, that I've thought about a lot as I got ready for this is, like, we've made doubt a virtue in our society. We've enshrined it. We've sloganized it. We say things like, seeing is believing. Like, like that's a thing. We say, you know, um, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We don't want doubt. We don't want there to be anything that we're uncertain about. It's, it's ingrained in us. And if you have young kids or if you've been around a young kid long enough, you know this to be true. Like, I have a six-year-old, and anything that I do that doesn't work out exactly the way she expects it to, she wants to do it. Like, she wants to try it. She's like, let me try. Let me do it. She doubts that I can actually do it myself. And she'll be like, you know, if Netflix isn't working, or if I can't get, you know, uh, uh, PJ Masks to come up on Netflix or on the uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, Disney app, she's like, well, did you try? Like, did you try? I'm like, yeah, of course I tried that. Like, she just has this innate sense of, like, I can't trust that this thing is the right thing. I've got to doubt this. And, and, and so we've made it into this thing that we, we expect in every other place in our life, but sometimes that can be a problem when it comes to, to our faith. Like, we, we, we struggle with doubt in terms of faith. When we think about our faith and doubt, a lot of times we think that those things are completely at odds. There's no room for faith in doubt is, is kind of how we see it. And so we're going to look at one of the more famous passages that has to do with doubt today. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 24. You can follow along in your uh, bulletins as well. And so in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach your hand out, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus, said, uh, Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So who is this Thomas guy anyway? Well, for starters, he's a disciple who has the absolute worst luck in nicknames. Think about it. Among the disciples, there's Simon. Jesus changes his name to Peter, which doesn't sound all that cool until you figure out that Peter actually meant, like, the rock. So that's pretty cool. There was another Simon. 
This one's nickname was The Zealot, which you know means he was excited about something. Like That's, that's a good nickname. Uh, there was also John, the disciple Jesus loved. And as if being the disciple that Jesus loved wasn't enough, John also had another nickname. See, John and his brother James, they were known as the Sons of Thunder, which is so cool. Like, you cannot beat being called the Sons of Thunder, right? Like, that's the coolest nickname in the Bible. It may be just the coolest nickname ever. I think if these guys were around today, they'd have to have a reality TV show. Like, you can't be called the Sons of Thunder and not have a reality TV show. I also think they'd have to be Australian, because, like, that just seems to fit. Sons of Thunder seems very Australian, and they're probably, like, ex-professional wrestlers uh, in today's world. And as I was thinking about this, this thing just kept going on in my head, and I apologize uh, uh, in advance for this, but it, I, I keep seeing this, this thing. It's, join us next week on an all-new Sons of Thunder, as the bros from down under go on a walkabout to share the good news about their old pal JC. Like, only on Discovery Channel. I, I, don't, I don't know why, but like every time I thought about Sons of Thunder, that happened in my brain, so now you know that, and I'm sorry. Um, Thomas, on the other hand, he got to be known, immortalized through the ages, as Doubting Thomas, which is exactly what happens when your buddies give you a nickname. Apparently, the disciples, they aren't a whole lot different than any group that you might have been a part of in like middle or high school, like a sports team or, or a club or marching band or anything like that. So you, you kind of know how this one goes, right? Your so-called friends are like, oh, we just saw you do something you'd probably like to forget. Or, oh, we learned something about you that you don't really like about yourself. Sweet! We're going to make sure you remember that for the rest of your life. Also... If you look, uh, Doubting Thomas wasn't his first nickname. Back at the beginning there, in verse 24, it says he's, he, he's Thomas, also known as Didymus. Guys, Didymus means the twin, which is a hideously lame nickname, but it tells us two things about Thomas. The first is this. He looked like somebody else. I mean, like a lot like somebody else. So much so, they could appear to be the same person. It also tells us that he must have been the less cool or, or, or less important of the two people because had he been the more important or the more cool one of the two, they'd have just called him Tom, and they'd have called the other guy the twin. And I should actually note here that the commentators are divided about Thomas's name and, and whether or not it's a nickname or his given name, which, you know, yes, they study, like, super deep theology and stuff. Biblical scholars also get into, like, the names of the apostles, which is, you know, just for funsies, I'm sure, for them. And so, so it's possible that because the, the name Thomas is pretty close to the Aramaic word for twin— they argue that Thomas's parents gave him that name on, on purpose, like maybe he was a real twin. And if that's the case, I think it's actually worse than if it was a nickname, because you see, in the Jewish world, those, those names, that what you name your baby is supposed to convey some meaning about the child. And so what would be conveyed by naming your child the twin? The most obvious one would be that the parents ran out of ideas after they named the first kid. Or they liked the other kid better. Or they had just read some hip new parenting book that said, you know, if you give your kid a weirdly insulting name, it'll actually help to develop character in them, help them grow up and be strong. I don't know. We, we, it's hard to say. The scholars are still working on that one. But here's the thing. Aside from, having the horrible, aside from having horrible luck in the nickname department, we know a couple other things about Thomas. His name shows up in all four of the Gospels and in Acts as well. Um, but his exploits, like the things that he did, are only recorded in John. And there's two other times that, that they talk in John about Thomas and something that he said or did. And so uh, the first one is in John chapter 11, where Lazarus has just died. 
And Jesus has decided to finally to go to Bethany and, and to see the family and to go there and, and check on his friend. And so the disciples, they're remembering the fact that the last time they were there, the Jews really, really, really wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, they tried to stone him. And they're all like, hey, let's, let's stay here. Let's, let's not go. But Jesus' mind was made up. And so Thomas, he turns to the other disciples and he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Which is not a great first impression uh, for Thomas. You know, it's, it's a bit of a Debbie Downer moment. He's kind of comes off as the Eeyore of the group. Luckily, that's not all there is to know about Thomas. We also see him in uh, John chapter 14 at the Last Supper, which uh, even though is six chapters separated from what we're talking about this morning in, in chapter 20, is actually just 10 days prior to the resurrected Jesus appearing to him inside, uh, a locked, inside that locked room there and showing him his hands and, and, his, and his body. See, this time the disciples are in the upper room and Jesus is talking about how he's going somewhere they can't go. He tells them about this house with tons of room that he's going to make a place for them. He tells them that they know the way to get there. And it's at this point that our friend Thomas, he, he, he speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that question actually sets Jesus up for one of the I am statements we looked at a few weeks ago. I am the way. So more than just the Eeyore of the disciples, Thomas is one who's also willing to speak up, and he's, he's willing to admit when he doesn't get it, and he's willing to be vulnerable. And these character traits, I think they really make Thomas the right disciple to bear the burden of doubt in the Gospels. But while it's Thomas's burden that gets memorialized, doubt was actually the most common reaction to news that Jesus had risen. In all four of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, there's no one that just simply takes someone else's word for the fact that he's come back. In fact, in Luke, before Jesus appears to the disciples as a group in person, they dismiss the news of a couple others that he has risen as like idle tales or nonsense. In Matthew, even when the resurrection, resurrected Jesus appears to all the disciples, there, it, it says pretty clearly that some of them still didn't believe. Some of them still doubted. And so Thomas, he may have been the disciple on whom the title was conferred, but it's pretty clear he wasn't the only doubter. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe you're new to the whole uh, Jesus thing, maybe you made a decision last week that you believe that God actually is who he says he is, or, or maybe you're here and you don't know what you think about all of this Jesus stuff. And when you think about this resurrection stuff, it makes it even more clear that there are some things that you are unsure about. Maybe it kind of weirds you out. It stirs up more doubts inside you. I just want to let you know, I get it. And like I said earlier, I've been there. You're in good company. And I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about the disciples, the people closest to Jesus. They doubted at first as well. And I mean, really, is it any wonder that there were doubts? They, they didn't have a frame of reference for this. They were on that part of the map where it says, here be dragons. If you were here last week, you remember... You might remember that uh, after Mary finds out that the tomb is empty, she runs and she gets John and, and she gets Peter and she brings them back to the tomb and they're walking around inside, they're looking and they're checking things out. And so as he's telling the story, uh, John also stops and, and he turns aside to us, his readers, and he says, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus' closest followers doubted that he had come back because they were in no way anticipating the resurrection. One of the ways that people will attempt to discredit the resurrection is by appealing to the supposed gullibility or, or lack of scientific sophistication of people at that time. Their argument is this. People at that time were willing to believe that Jesus had died and rose again. They bought into it because they didn't know any better. But that's not what we see 
in the text. What we see in the text is that these people, they, 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 they had just lost somebody they cared about, and they aren't expecting a risen Savior. Mary went to the tomb to continue, to continue preparing Jesus' now empty and, 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 and decaying body to be buried. She knew that he was dead, and she knew that dead people just don't come back to life. Now, we can look back on this knowing the end from the beginning, but, but for them, they were living in this utter darkness that followed Good Friday sunset. They had no expectation of the unimaginable grace and the resplendent glory that would accompany the Easter Sunday sunrise. The one who would convince the disciples to leave behind their lives and their families to follow him, the one whose teaching and actions had amazed so many, the one that they believed was going to change everything had died, just like all men do. And despite what Jesus had prophesied about his own death, they had way less reason to believe that the cross was actually the place of his, his, greatest, his, his, his greatest achievement, his, his, his greatest victory, and more reason to believe that it was just where their hopes had gone to die. We're told directly in verse 19 of chapter 20, they were scared and they're hiding out for fear that they were going to be next. That because they were associated with Jesus, somebody was going to come for them and drag them away to be arrested and, and, and held and imprisoned or, or worse. So yeah, they doubted. So all things considered, I'm not convinced that Doubting Thomas is a great nickname. And I think we, we, we can do him one better. I've written a few down. How about Rational Thomas? How about Ernest Thomas? How about Thomas the Realist? Or maybe the disciple whose mama didn't raise no fool. I, I think those are all high-quality choices. Uh, maybe not the last one so much, but, but the one that really stands out to me, the one that seems to make the most sense to me is Ernest Thomas. I just think that term, Ernest, it just seems to capture the quintessential honesty and sincerity of what Thomas is saying there and what he's doing. See, I think that in Thomas what we see is this, th this idea of I want to know. I want, I want to figure it out. And I think it's, it also speaks to the honest doubt that, that those of us uh, uh, that would come after him would have, because really Thomas is each one of us in our doubts. He's us in our desire for more certainty. He's us in our desire to know. Now what's truly amazing in this story is that through Thomas, you know, Jesus is giving all of us what we're longing to find, which is real and, 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 and true. He's giving us some space and some time, some respect for, for where we're at. And see, Jesus shows great mercy to Thomas and through Thomas to us by accommodating this request. As Lord and God, he doesn't have to do that. He could just simply demand unswerving loyalty. In fact, that would be what was expected. You know, what kind of a king would be so accommodating? It's just simply not done. That's not the kingly thing to do. However, if you read the Gospels, what do you expect from the king that's revealed in here? Isn't that the kind of accommodation that we see throughout the entire incarnation all the way up through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension? When we had rendered ourselves incapable of entering God's presence because of our sin, God deigns to come down off of his throne and enter into the mess we had made to be the way to go back to him, knowing all the while that it would cost the life of his son. That's accommodation. Grace like that is accommodation on the grandest possible scale. By meeting Thomas in the midst of his doubts, Jesus made it clear that he honors honest doubts and that he loves honest doubters. 
That means that as his representatives to the world, Christians and churches, we can't ignore or brush aside the doubts and questions that arise in the mind of the people in the world around us and the people within our church. To that end, every couple of years in student ministries, we do a series called Can I Ask That? It's a series all about the things that often seem taboo to talk about in church, the questions that we figure our our high school students, our middle school students have, but are afraid to ask because they don't know whether or not it's safe to do that here. And so this year, we looked at these four topics. We, We looked at the question, can I trust the Bible? We looked at, does science disprove God? Why does God allow bad things to happen? And why would God allow someone to go to hell? See, the idea from this series came from a small group study done by Fuller Youth Institute. Tough questions that go unanswered, that Fuller team realized, are the fuel for doubts about God. If we're being honest here, the church as a whole doesn't have the greatest reputation as a place where those kinds of questions are safe to ask. Maybe that's a part of your story. Maybe you were curious about God and you had these burning questions, questions that were important to you, questions that you tried to ask, questions that you thought might help you figure out whether you could truly believe or not. But instead of answers, it was like you were Hermione Granger back at Hogwarts. You know, and you're in this class with Dolores Umbridge and she's just like, you tried to ask your questions, she just keeps telling you in that simperingly sweet voice, stick to the approved curriculum. And, and by the way, who are you to ask questions? You just have to take it by faith. The problem with saying that all the time, though, the problem with not engaging with these questions in a real way, is that in the end, people feel like they have to walk away because they can't get their questions taken seriously. And if that's you, just, you know, take heart, because I've got all the answers you need, and I'm going to remove all your doubts right now. (laughs) Actually, even if I did have all the answers, and just so we're clear, I don't, it turns out that gift-wrapped answers are no better than just saying, Take it by faith. These, when, we, when we try to put things in these neat little packages and say, here's all you got to do, that's not what works. What works is saying we're a place where you can come and you can ask the questions that you have and you're okay here if you doubt. Talk to us. Be in relationship with us. Let us walk through you with it. See, what we need is a church that honors doubt as much as Jesus honored Thomas's doubts in that moment. That's the kind of church that we need to be. See, what they also found, the thing that, that they found at Fuller while they were doing this study that, that led to the can I ask that stuff. What they said is this, doubt isn't toxic to faith, silence is. I believe that is absolutely true. Doubt is not toxic to faith, silence is. And there's this definite need for the church to be that place where we're open to talking about tough things. But I also think that statement cuts both ways. See, I think If you have doubts, you've got to be willing to give voice to them because your doubts are ultimately your doubts. And if you don't own them, if you don't lift your voice, if you don't raise those questions like Thomas did, then they'll never get answered. Now, maybe doubts and questions didn't keep you from starting a relationship with God. Maybe you are all in for Jesus, but you've got these questions you're afraid to ask because you don't know what you'll do if the answer's not good enough. And like when people bring up these, these topics and they look at you because like you're the one that knows Jesus. And so like, what do you think about this? You get this pit in your stomach and you're like, oh man, please don't ask me about this because I, I, I just don't know. That was me for the longest time. I love Jesus, but I can like physically remember as I thought through some of this, as I was thinking about some of this, that feeling in my stomach of like, please don't ask me. 
please don't ask me, please don't ask me. I remember being 18 and getting owned by this kid uh, uh, who was also in one of my classes who was an atheist, and he's just like, well, what about this, and what about that, and what about that, and what about that, and I had no answers. And I said, well, when you don't have faith, you know, it, it, of course it doesn't make sense. Like, and, and, and there's a part of that that's true. At a certain point, we have to take a step of faith. But there can be reasonable answers for some of these things that we believe. Following Jesus doesn't mean following by blind faith. I think there's a little room for doubt. The problem was I wasn't just afraid of the challenges from outside the church. I was afraid of what people would think of me inside the church if I brought these questions up. I was afraid of not being seen as a real Christian. I was afraid of being seen of, being seen as someone who didn't have good faith. But the problem with that is, the way that you can get to good faith, the way that you can develop faith, is by dealing with these doubts. I love the way Tim Keller describes this. He, 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 he describes the potential benefits of doubt, saying, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I know that antibodies play an integral role in helping us stay strong and healthy and growing in our physical bodies. And if Tim Keller is right, and I think he is, then our doubts can play just as crucial a role in the growth and development of our faith if we let them. And I know that sounds antithetical, so, so let me explain. See, in general, we live our lives in the realm of stability, whatever that looks like. We're in stability. Our current level of faith and our current stability looks, looks like that. And so things as they are are manageable. Things make sense. They may not be perfect, but they work. At, at this point, wherever we fall on the spectrum of faith, from we don't believe at all to we're all in for Jesus, it's working for us. Think the disciples before Jesus' arrest. They know the deal. They know how things work. Then one night after dinner, Jesus gets arrested. The next day he's killed. What now? Now we're in the realm of instability. We're in the realm of doubt. This is where fear and, 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 and worry, this is where those things are born, where they thrive. See, external events, like, like, like what we saw with the disciples, can bring us here. Our own internal worries and doubts, if they're left unchecked for too long, can bring us here. We find ourselves at a turning point. This is where the rubber meets the road, and we discover whether or not the faith we have can, face, can, can stand up to the crisis we face. And if we've been blithely going through life, too busy or too indifferent or too scared, to ask the hard questions about our faith, this is the point where we can find ourselves shipwrecked, where we, can, where we can feel as though our faith can't stand up. This is where things can fall apart and, and, and we can lose faith. We can walk away from, from what we have thought to be true. I think it's interesting at this point, uh, when we're in the midst of doubt, to realize that everything kind of actually boils down to a few questions. Whatever doubts that are that come up, they're all kind of some form of these deeper questions. Like, is God real? If he's real, is he who he says he is? And can I trust him? Those are the three essential things that I believe we're looking for when we face doubts. And now when we're in the middle of crisis, when we're in doubt, we face a choice. We can continue to refuse to deal with our doubts and, and, and questions and pretend nothing has changed. We can try to force our doubts and our questions back down inside so that we can remain inside the bubble of faith we had before. We can bow to that pressure inward and try to go back inside. And sometimes that's the response we get in the midst of our doubts from other well-meaning Christians, whether intentionally 
because they aren't ready to deal with their own questions or doubts, or unintentionally because they think they're actually pushing us in the right direction, they can be one of those things that puts that pressure on us to try to force us back inside that bubble, bubble of, of the faith that we had before. The problem with that is those responses, they tend to communicate that we shouldn't doubt, that doubt's not okay. And so if we have doubt, that also tells us don't, don't talk about it. And so while that may work for a while, the reality is all we're doing there is staving off the inevitable. See, see, when we push in on ourselves, when we try to go back inside, when we refuse to deal with things, what we're doing is just building up the pressure inside. And at some point, that pressure will cause us to burst. Thankfully, there's another option. We can choose to let our doubts be the means by which our faith grows. We can lean into the doubts or questions that we have. We can expose them to the light like Thomas did. We can be vulnerable in the midst of our doubts like Thomas was. Now, Thomas's unwillingness to believe the report of his fellow disciples, that may not seem like vulnerability on the surface, but I think it was. He was being honest. And that honesty could have cost him something. It's never, it's never easy to be the one person who doesn't agree with the rest of the group. In fact, I think it would have been easier for Thomas if he had just decided to keep his mouth shut and go along to get along. It may have even been easier for Thomas if he had decided to walk away completely, but he doesn't do either of those things. Thomas doesn't let his faith get shipwrecked by this moment. He also doesn't cave to the pressure to, to, to go back to the way things were. See, Thomas decides to wade through his doubts. He decides to wade through the instability. And Jesus clearly honors our honest doubts, and he clearly doesn't want us to stay there. And so Thomas moved forward to this new level of faith, this new stability, because he was willing to go through. See, he, 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 had been, he would be unwilling to reach that new level of faith had he not stayed there because growth happens when we navigate through instability and not run from it. See, doubt's not toxic to faith. Silence is. And doubt's not toxic to faith, but rather it's an opportunity to grow our faith. Now, just, just real talk here, you, you probably will always have some doubts. You're not going to, to wrestle with your doubts once and then never doubt again. That's just not the way it works. But if Tim Keller is right, that's actually healthy. The freedom comes not in knowing that your faith is unassailable and that there are no doubts. The freedom comes in knowing that our doubts can be the, fat, the, the path to a maturing faith. The thing is, when you know what to do with your doubts, they get way less scary. In verse 28 uh, of chapter 20 here, we see Thomas's response to Jesus when he does meet him face to face in the midst of his doubts. Jesus extends the opportunity to Thomas to put his, his, his finger in the hands and, and, and in his side to feel his wounds. But Thomas foregoes that. Thomas, Thomas foregoes that altogether, and he just re responds immediately in faith. Though his response is only five words, it's actually foundational for the faith of all of us in this room and everyone who believed after him. So the words that Thomas speaks there, they're the perfect culmination of the gospel of God, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ as is presented in John's gospel. See, the very first words in the book of John are, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we, the readers, are told just a few verses later that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But for the disciples, 
they don't get that parenthetical comment. They are not let in on that fact. They don't find out, in fact, until, until later, until John. They don't, they don't ever give voice to that until, uh, until Thomas declares Jesus my Lord and my God. What he's speaking in that moment is the entirety of what that gospel has been building up to at that point. In fact, that's the first time in any of the gospels that any of the disciples declares that of God, that says that Jesus is not just someone who had come down from God, but actually is God. By speaking this three-letter noun, Thomas is making an incredible and crucial announcement about Jesus. Oftentimes, though, it's the smallest bit of grammar that makes the most impact. And in this case, it's actually a choice of determiner that Thomas uses here that's everything. See, Thomas does not call Jesus a Lord or a God. There were plenty of those to go around at that time. And to be sure, in Rome at that time, even if we count just the major gods, there were plenty of gods to go around too. There were more than a dozen, just, just major gods in Rome at that time. He doesn't merely call Jesus the Lord or the God. And while that would have been a true statement and would rightly acknowledge the power that Jesus had and, and his greatness, it would fall short of capturing the full reality of who Jesus is and what he did and what he's inviting us into. Instead, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. And while when we read this, we can feel that these words drip with the rebirth of Thomas's hope, they're also the birth of our faith, their birth of the new starting point for all of us. These five words, they change everything. God is now and forevermore God with us, even though we were the ones that broke the relationship. God wanted a relationship with us so much that rather than bidding us to figure a way out to get to him, he comes to us, even in our doubts. What kind of a God does that? A God that honors honest doubts, that loves honest doubters, that rewards vulnerability with deeper faith and deeper relationship. See, doubt's not toxic to faith. Instead, every doubt is an invitation to a deeper relationship with God. See, it would be easy to read Jesus' words in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Uh, as a condemnation of Thomas and the disciples who only believed when they were able to see Jesus firsthand. I don't think that's what's going on. Instead, it's an acknowledgement of the fact, and a blessing actually, on those of us who would come after, those of us who would not have that same opportunity. See, it's unlikely that Jesus is going to walk into a room with us and offer to let us put our finger into his nail-pierced hands or his hand into his wounded side. So ultimately, we're going to have to take a step of faith. But how do you get close enough to the realm of new or deeper faith to take that step when you're surrounded by doubt, when you're deep in your questions? You've got to walk through them. But you don't have to do it alone. See, though, it may not be the same way that he met Thomas. Jesus will still meet us there in the midst of those doubts. In verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20, it says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We may not have Jesus face to face, but we have the testimony of those who were there. 
I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because I believe that this record is a reliable account of the testimony of reasonable men and women who were convinced not because they were gullible or lacked scientific sophistication, but people that believed because they experienced something that overrode those initial doubts that they had that Jesus had come back. I believe because when we look at their lives after that, we can see the change in them. Thomas would go from doubter to being the one who would evangelize parts of Iran and India. Peter, who we'll learn more about next week, he went from the one who would deny Jesus when Jesus was at his least, at his most vulnerable state, to being the one who would lead the early church and the disciples as they began to share the good news. Now, if you doubt whether or not you can trust the Bible, I, I understand that. I also believe that if you're willing to expose that doubt to the light, I think you'll see that there's reason to trust this, and you don't have to figure that out on your own either. You may not have Jesus face to face, but we have each other. We want to be an option, or we want to be there for you in your questions and doubts. We have a great place for you to explore those questions as well. It's called Starting Point. It starts today at 1230 over here in the offices. We would love for you to be a part of that. We would love for you to come and spend some time looking and, and giving voice to the doubts that you have and trying to figure out whether or not you can believe that this is true. Also, if you haven't had the opportunity yet to read the April edition of Simple, I would suggest that you do that right away. They look like this, and you'll be able to find them at the end of the ramp when you get outside here into the lobby on, on a table out there. If you want to understand the process, if you want to know what it looks like to walk from, from where you are right now through the mess of uncertainty and into a deeper place of faith, pick this up. Open it up to the featured article. It's the big article in the middle of this. And read it. And then if you find yourself resonating with Eric, the guy that you're going to meet in here, you need to do something about it. And I would suggest you do what he did. Join a starting point group. Engage with others in conversations about your doubts and be open to hear and see what God might be trying to tell you and show you. Don't wait. Don't make excuses. What have you got to lose? Worst case scenario, you go through that class and you walk away even more convinced of your doubts somehow, but I don't think that that's what will happen. I think that if you are willing to be vulnerable enough to expose your doubts to the light, if you're willing to allow others to speak to your questions, if you're willing to engage openly and honestly, I believe that God will meet you there because Thomas shows that God honors honest doubts. Your doubts shouldn't scare you. Admitting your doubts won't make God angry. Thomas's story shows that God honors honest doubts and that he loves honest doubters. It also shows that he'll meet you there in the midst of them. Look, this is a safe place for your questions, so ask them. Take all the time that you need, but no more than you must. Ask as many honest questions as you have. But here's the thing. Don't let your questions become your excuse for not answering when God calls you into deeper relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being willing to, to leave heaven and come down here for us. Thank you for meeting us where we are, even when where we are is mired in doubt and questions. The depth of your mercy and the vastness of your grace are beyond our ability to fully comprehend, and I am grateful for that. 
I pray for everyone who is taking uh, uh, and those who are leading the starting point groups across all of Summit. God, I pray that as always you would be in their midst, that you would inhabit those places with them. That in the midst of their questions and their doubts and their uncertainty, that you would be there and that you would speak to their hearts. God, I pray that they might come to know you better through that whole process. Open their eyes to see and their ears to hear so that they may find what you are able or what you are trying to, to tell them and what you are trying to show them, God. And Lord, I pray for all of us that when we face doubts, God, we would be emboldened to lean into them, that we would be emboldened to go after you, not to shrink away from our doubts, not to refuse to think about them, not to, to, to be afraid of, of what they might do to us, God. I pray that you would reveal to us just how much you love us, that you would guide us into deeper faith with you in the midst of all of those things. Thank you for always being there with us, God. In the name of your son Jesus, in whom we have put our hope, amen.